The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Happy Fourth of July weekend as well. We celebrate our freedom as a nation as well as our freedom in Christ. Amen. Uh, if the little handout you received, the outer handout this morning did have a mistake on it, uh, it should be April monthly general fund report, and it should be $277,000 instead of $227,000. So we're grateful for your gifts to uh, the ministry here month after month, year after year, uh, as we continue to uh, seek to glorify God in all that we do. I appreciate your prayers tomorrow. We do a liver ablation tomorrow. I get delivered, if you will, uh, tomorrow. Uh, they go in and microwave, fry out the metastasis that is there, and we're praying that the Lord uh, superintends every step of that way in the journey. We're excited to report that God has given us great peace in the midst of what could be a time of panic and great calm in the midst of what would be chaos because, as we just said, he's stronger than anything, and our trust, our hope is in him, and it's a certain hope, and it's a fixed hope. If the Lord takes me home in months or in years, that's his business, but we're going to trust him each and every day. Amen. So that's how we ask you to pray for us in the days ahead. So we continue our question series. Last week, if you were with us, we brought in Dan Wallace from Dallas Seminary. And uh, this week, we bring in Dave Tate from Temple Bible Church. And uh, Annette, if you go to the first slide there, Annette, go to the first slide for me. The question this week is, how can a loving God send people to hell? And when you're the senior pastor, you get to choose the topics you want to preach on. So I gave Dave Tate this topic. Let's welcome Dave to the front. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. So things have been kind of heavy around here lately, so I decided to go with a lighter topic this morning. Um, Now listen, I tried to get excited about this message, but if this topic gets you pumped up, uh, my wife is a counselor, and, uh, and she takes all forms of payment. But, um, but this is a, obviously a heavy topic, and hell is, is highly controversial, and it's been debated for centuries, and so we're going to solve it all in 35 minutes or less. And so there's a lot of sidebar conversations that we can get into when it comes to this topic. Um, there's questions like, uh, what about those who don't hear about Jesus? How can we have joy in heaven knowing there are people in hell? Um, does God choose us, or do we choose him? So there's a lot of sidebar conversations to get into with this, and you're your mind's going to have those as we have this discussion. I'm just going to warn you that up front. Um, but if you want to dive into this, into this topic further, I'd recommend a couple of books. One is Erasing Hell by Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. This is more of a popular read, um, easy to read, and, and really, really well done. Another book is called Hell Under Fire. This is the more academic version of that. And there are several articles in there that address all kinds of questions that you may have. So it's summertime. And you may have time to read, so get after it, right? Um, and so, uh, so hell is a difficult doctrine, and it's why most people don't believe in it. In fact, a re- recent survey, uh, 64% said they're going to heaven. Only 1% said they might go to hell. I don't even understand the might. Like, they didn't even, it wasn't even absolute. Like, I might go to hell. Just 1% of people said that. And throughout history, people have been all over the map on how they viewed hell. And so this first guy is a guy named Origen. And his view on hell was that hell was a place where the wicked go to be purged of their evil 
so they could then find God. So this is the early form of the purgatorial view that you find in some doctrines today. Uh, this is Origen's view. And then we have um, from Dante's Divine Comedy, this is Dante's Inferno. This is a picture uh, by an Italian artist who painted his, divine, his, uh, his Inferno. And what he depicted was hell being under the earth's surface and having nine layers or nine rings of hell and suffering. And uh, so Dante, um, he may have been the first one that gave us this image of hell being beneath the earth's crust, um, if we can say it that way. He may have been the first one to have that idea. Um, I don't think he's right about that. But then you have these guys, modern-day theologians they were, and um, so they have an album called Let There Be Rock, and they, in their, in their, their song, they have a song titled Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be. I don't know what it was about the, 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 the rock groups of the 70s and 80s. They just love to sing about hell. There's something about those guys. I don't know what it was. But, um, so they had their viewpoint on hell. And then we come to this next guy, Rob Bell. This is a guy who, well, he was there. Now he went somewhere else, I guess. I'm not sure what happened to him. Um, maybe he asked to have his name removed from the presentation. I'm not sure. Uh, but just picture a guy named Rob Bell sitting there. And uh, he wrote a book called Love Wins several years ago. And in his book, he implies that no one really ends up in hell. But he believes that hell is really about the various hells on earth, things like rape, genocide, injustice. And so he, he focuses more on, it's not, it's not so much about eternal destiny, it's more about, um, you know, hell on earth here and now. And so he was a prominent author, pastor, and, and, and writer. And so he um, had a big church. He wrote this book, then left his church. Now he's working for, I think, the Oprah channel, which is probably fitting for him, I think. Um, but then there's a guy named Clark Pinnock who said this statement. And this is in line with kind of what Rob Bell believes. He says, let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind and outrageous doctrine a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness, whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any moral standards and by the gospel itself. Now, when you and I read that, on the one hand, we might feel appalled that somebody might say that. On the other hand, I think we feel what he feels. We're just afraid to admit it. And so I think we have this emotional reaction to the concept of hell. Most of us, if you're brought up in church, you know you're supposed to kind of believe in hell, but we have this emotional reaction against it. And listen, hell, hell is not some abstract concept. It's personal. Because you've got people you're thinking about. I've got people I'm thinking about. We all have people that we can think about and picture. And some of them live some pretty good lives. And it's hard for us to imagine, really, God, like you're going to send this person to eternal suffering in hell when they lived a pretty good life? In fact, I had to do a really difficult funeral recently. Uh, My uncle passed away, and he was an atheist. And he asked me to do his funeral. And he said I couldn't talk about Jesus. 
And I went through a lot of back and forth on, like, should I even do this thing? I wasn't even sure how to handle it. And I felt like I should have a ministry of presence in that situation, so I did. But it was so difficult doing a funeral for a person that, as far as I know, is not with Jesus. And having to make sense of someone's life and, and, and talk to many people in the audience that also weren't believers. And so you think of people, I think of people. And I know many of you have family and friends that you're thinking about right now. And so the topic of hell is hard enough, but it's even harder when it gets personal. When there's people that you know and you're thinking about. Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn your emotions off today. I'm not asking you to have just an intellectual discussion about just the text. and I'm not asking you to turn your emotions off. I'm asking you to come to this topic because I think, if anything, we need to feel the weight of this topic. The goal is not to walk out of here feeling good about hell. I don't want you walking out of here and saying, yeah, I feel pretty good about hell now that Dave gave that. No, we're not. that's not the reaction that we're hoping for today. Because hell is nothing to feel good about. This is a, a weighty topic. And, but it's also a necessary discussion. So I want to frame our discussion this morning with a passage from Isaiah. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 14. And the prophet writes, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way, who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding, so this passage, I think, reminds us, whenever we have questions about suffering, about hell, or anything pertaining to God, um, we've got to remember who we're dealing with. This is God we're dealing with. And so you look at a passage like this, and later on in Isaiah chapter 40, um, the prophet writes that um, God describes himself as knowing where every single star is located and, and calls them each by name. Do you know how many stars are, they estimate, are in the universe? There are about 5,000 that are visible to the eye from Earth. And then they estimate there are 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone. They also, I'm not sure how they got this number, but they estimate that there are 125 billion galaxies. Just, just wrap your mind around that. And, and the, the God who made all this... This is the God who is infinitely wise, infinite in power, and this is the God that you and I tend to critique and question. And my brain weighs three pounds. Now, some of you in here may have maybe a little bit more than that, um, but my brain weighs three pounds. And it's, it's me and my little brain that tends to question God. The God I just described to you, we tend to question God and, 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 and put him on the defense. And so this passage in Isaiah um, refers to when people make God the student and we assume the role of teacher um, with God. And so we claim to know justice better than the one upon whom it is based. 
And so as we dive into the discussion about hell, we have to keep this in mind of who God is, who we're dealing with, that this God, we will not understand everything there is to know about this God that you and I worship. And this side of eternity, I find encouragement and comfort knowing that the Bible tells us that. That the Bible tells us that um, we will not understand everything there is to know about who God is and what he has done and what he will do. And so I want to frame this discussion with these ideas. You know, most arguments against hell start with this statement. I can't believe in a God who would... You've heard that statement before, I'm sure. you probably said it before. I've said it before. I can't believe in a God who would beware of the person who starts an argument with this phrase. Because think of how many biblical characters could have said that phrase. Joseph could have said it. I can't believe in a God who allowed me to spend so much time in jail. Daniel could have said it. I can't believe in a God who allowed his people to live in captivity. Hosea could have said, I can't believe in a God who would ask me to marry a prostitute. Job could have said, I can't believe in a God who would cause me so much suffering. And we could say it today. I can't believe in a God who allows children to suffer. Or I can't believe in a God who allows some to have plenty while others starve. I mean, let's make this personal. Right now, I'm having trouble with a God who allows a godly 58-year-old pastor to get eye cancer at the same time allowing Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, to be healthy at 91. So we all have our thing that we could say, I can't believe in a God who would. And so you and I can't live life by that statement. Because if hell does not make sense to you, and you live life by that statement, then you'll get tripped up on something else. Something else will trip you up, and you'll walk away from God for some other reason. You and I cannot live life with that statement, I can't believe in a God who would. This is what the Bible warns against. Because some things we will just not understand. We will not comprehend. So to anyone who's trying to explain away hell... This goes for the theologians, this goes for people sitting here this morning. I would ask this question. Where in your theology do you allow for a God who doesn't quite fit your preferences? You and I are made in God's image, but sometimes we try to remake God in our image. We try to turn the tables on God and remake him, refashion him, And make him like we think he should be. And this is what the Bible calls idolatry. We're making God in our image. He's made us in his image, but we're not going to understand everything there is to know about him. And so we cannot turn the table on God. Now, in week one of the series, Chase answered the question, why does the God of the Old Testament seem so different than the God of the New Testament? Because for some reason, you and I picture the God of the Old Testament as this mean and judgmental God, and God of the New Testament as this nice and gracious God. The only problem with that is Jesus. Because Jesus talked about hell a lot. Because you and I, we tend to picture Jesus as this smiling, bearded hippie who just walked around 
with a baby lamb named Cuddles. Right? And so if we're going to look at this, we have to look at what Jesus actually said about hell. So we have to agree, Jesus was the kindest, he was the most gracious, the most merciful person who ever walked on the face of the earth. And so I want to focus our time just on a few passages. These are direct quotes from Jesus on what he said about hell. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Matthew 5, 29. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, is he saying to literally cut off the hand and gouge out the eye? No. This is called hyperbole. This is an overstatement. If that was the case, we would all be handless and footless and eyeless. And so what is he saying? This is overstatement. Jesus would often use hyperbole, overstatement to make a point. The point he's trying to make is that sometimes we need to give up things of great value to keep us from sin. In fact, when I read this passage, I read it and I I often wonder sometimes if Jesus looked down the pipeline of history and saw the dangers of pornography and the internet when he said this statement, because it it fits perfectly with what he's saying in this passage. And the thing that I say to my students all the time is, what lengths are you willing to go to manage sin in your life? Yes, sin's always a heart issue. It's a heart issue. But sometimes you've got to maybe cut off the phone or cut off the account in order to deal with the sin. And I'll say, I'll say that, I'll say, look, what I don't understand is some of you all, Jesus says, cut off the arm or gouge out the eye to deal with sin, and it's, it's an exaggeration. But here's the deal, forget the arm and forget the eye. Many of us won't even cut off the account. And so what links are you willing to go to deal with sin in your life and cut out the source of temptation in your life And so that's sort of the the point he's making, but don't be distracted by that. Um, You've got to understand here that the bigger point he's trying to make, the bigger point is being casual about sin might show we're not converted. If you have this willful, rebellious life where you just don't seem to care, you're casual about sin in your life, then the point here is, that this might show that you're not converted. This might show you're not converted. And someone who doesn't belong to Jesus will spend eternity separated from him in hell. This is what Jesus is saying in this passage. Now, one debate that people can get into about hell concerns this idea of annihilation or eternal suffering. Annihilation is this idea of of, of someone going to suffer for a time and then they're just destroyed. So at some point, God just destroys all that were um, separated from him. 
and they're destroyed and they, they no longer exist. This is one view that some people hold. It's called annihilation. The other view is that people suffer for eternity separated from God. And I think Matthew 25 helps us with this debate. Matthew 25, go to, turn to Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 41. Matthew 25, 41, where it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then skip down to verses uh, 45 and 46. He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I want you to look at two key words. Eternal fire and eternal punishment. If you do a word study on these two concepts, it sure looks like Jesus is saying there is eternal suffering and separation from God, not annihilation. And so um, there are godly men who fall on both sides of this debate. But I do want to caution you because when I was, um, before I came on staff here at this church, I was on staff at a different church as an intern, and the lead pastor of our church stood in front of the congregation, and he was preaching a sermon on hell, and he made this statement. He presented the whole annihilation view versus the eternal suffering view, and here's what he said. He said, I lean towards annihilation because I need a God who shows mercy. He never took us anywhere in the text. He never showed us where he thought it said that. He just said, I need a God who shows mercy, so this is my view. And I, I was just blown away. I thought, it's not so much your conclusion I've got issue with, it's how you got there. Because you are imposing your view of justice and mercy on God, and you and I cannot turn the tables on God. We can't become his teacher. We can't become his counselor. This is a dangerous, I think, position for us to be in. And so um, we can't reverse roles with him. Another debate people have when it comes to hell is the debate of, is this literal fire or is this metaphorical fire? And um, they raise this question, I think. They're, they're trying to, I think, alleviate people's concerns. And so they'll say, well, it's metaphorical, so it's not as bad. And listen to these words by Sinclair Ferguson on this topic. He says, we are not under constraint to resolve how utter darkness can also have perpetually burning flames. These, I take it, are metaphors. But having said this, metaphors are used precisely in order to describe realities greater than themselves. Hell itself is not metaphorical, but real. These vivid metaphors point to a reality more awful than themselves, indeed, terrible beyond mere words." So godly men fall on both sides of this argument. But getting caught up here kind of misses the point, I think, because even if it is metaphorical, um, what comfort can we take in that? I take no comfort in that. In fact, the idea of a metaphor is it points beyond itself, and it points to a reality that's even worse than the image. And so if Jesus chose these kinds of words to describe eternal separation from God, I think he chose his words carefully because he knows that the reality he's trying to picture to us 
is worse than any of us can imagine. And so we can't get caught up in this debate and try to make it all seem not as bad as what Christ might make it sound like. I think he chose his words very carefully. And so I want to remind you, all these passages are spoken by, these are direct, direct quotes from Jesus. This is the most loving, the most gracious, the most merciful, the most caring, the most compassionate human being who ever walked on this earth. And these are the things that he's saying about hell. I mean, these are not the verses that end up on coffee mugs, right? Imagine getting that for a Father's Day gift, right? But, but these are direct quotes from Jesus. Imagine if a local pastor here started a church, planned a church, and started just saying these kinds of statements from the pulpit regularly. I mean, we'd, we'd say, hey, you better tone it down if you want to grow a big church. And so people ask, how can a loving God send people to hell? How can a loving God send people to hell? A loving God tells us the truth. A loving God gives us a warning. A loving God knows reality beyond how you and I comprehend reality. A loving God is infinite in his wisdom. And a loving God gives us a warning. In this next passage, Christ tells some parable about the wheat and the weeds. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. We'll start in verse 30. And this is the parable of the wheat and the weeds, where Jesus says in verse 30, Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, First, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it it into my barn. So the picture here is of believers and unbelievers living on earth together until judgment. And we see some element of judgment in this passage. But at first it seems a bit vague. So if you go on to verse uh, 40 to 43, Jesus explains what he means. In verse 40 he says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So these are terrifying images that Jesus portrays to his followers. This is not the party described by ACDC. And it's not the various hells on earth described by Rob Bell. This is a description of final judgment. But if we can find some element of hope in this topic, I think you can find it in verse 41. Look back at verse 41 again of Matthew 13 where it says, The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. So for just a minute, I want you to to depersonalize this whole thing and just think about evil. 
Can you and I rejoice knowing that one day God will bring an end to evil? Yes. We absolutely can rejoice knowing that one day God will bring an end to all evil that you and I see every day. Most Hollywood films are about this idea, good conquering evil in some form. And it's why you and I watch. It's why we go over and over again because we we resonate with the story that, that good should always conquer evil. And so can we rejoice knowing that God will eventually put an end to all evil? And even if you're here and you're a skeptic about this whole thing, I think you at least agree with us that you believe in some kind of justice. You you believe in some kind of good and evil and, and things being made right. And so we can rejoice knowing that one day God will put an end to the things that you and I see and experience every day. And so I want to broaden our discussion for a minute from hell to talk about just divine judgment in general. If you took a survey today and asked people, what is God like? Most would say God is what? God is love. But this does not mean that God loves everything. When, when people say God is love, what most mean by that is that God should get off their back and let them live how they want. That's how we typically think of God being love. But this would not be a God of love. This is not a God of love. Imagine for a minute if I'm sitting there watching TV on a Saturday and my six-year-old daughter comes to me and says, she says, Daddy, I just played in the street, stuck a fork in the toaster, and drank some disinfectant. And what if I sat there, just click, 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 didn't even respond to her? What if I did nothing? Would this be love? Like here my daughter is trying to destroy herself, and I just do nothing? I don't intervene. I show no emotion. No, that's not love. I might get a little bit upset that she's trying to destroy herself. And this is, I think, the emotion of God is that God looks at us with love. I think it's because God is loving that he's wrathful against sin. You and I have to stop seeing God's wrath and his love as oppositional to each other. They are not opposed to each other. They they go hand in hand. God is wrathful against sin because of his love for humanity. And he sees us trying to destroy ourselves. And he, yes, he's wrathful against sin because of it. Becky Piper writes, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer 
which is eating out the insides of the human race, he loves with his whole being. So when you and I say God is love, it cannot mean that God loves everything. He does not love pride, cruelty, injustice, lying, murder. The Bible says he hates these things. He hates these things. One writer even takes this further. Paul Williams says, Hell is a loving necessity. It is the place in which evil will be locked up forever. In other words, God created hell to deal with evil. He made it to be the final inescapable prison in which all evil, all rebellion against God, will be confined, never again to exert its poisonous influence. Given all the evil in the world, isn't it a tremendous reassurance to know that it does not go unnoticed by God? It is precisely because he's a God of love that there's a place called hell. You know, it's hard to think about hell and not be overwhelmed by it all. I've spent about two weeks reading about hell. And I feel a little bit depressed right now. (laughs) But it's hard not to be overwhelmed by hell. But you know what else is overwhelming? The daily news. You and I turn on the TV, we read the newspaper, and you see. You see evil at work. I mean, we see it in ourselves. I'm not being high and lofty here. We see it in ourselves. But the daily news is overwhelming to me. And I think it is to you too. And it's hard to imagine God, a God who allows hell. But it's even harder harder to imagine a God who allows evil to continue on into eternity. And so if hell says anything, it says that one day God's goodness is going to triumph over evil. All evil. So just imagine that. Just just imagine that. Imagine verse 41 for a minute. There's no more sin. No more evil. No more lying. No more cheating. No more adultery. No more stealing, no more murder, no more drug abuse, no more child abuse, no more human trafficking, no more disease, no more suffering, no more death, because it's all been locked away. Hell is going to be the final victory over evil. But it wasn't his first victory over evil. The first victory was the cross and the resurrection. And if you're still having a hard time believing in hell, look at the cross. Sinclair Ferguson says, 
Here then on the cross is all that makes hell into hell. Darkness, pain, isolation, sin-bearing, divine judgment, curse, alienation, utter darkness, separation from God. If we need to be convinced of the reality of hell, all we need to do is to consider the cross. It is all there. It is all there. And so in the cross, Jesus is separated from the Father. So you and I don't have to be separated from the Father eternally. He, bore our, he bears our separation in the cross. And so we can ask the question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? A loving God tells us the truth. A loving God provides a way out. A loving God says, you don't have to keep walking this way. A loving God receives us into a relationship with him. And so I want to talk for a minute to, if you consider yourself a believer, I want to talk to you first. If you consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ. As I've been reading on this the last couple of weeks, this is all very humbling because I'm reminded that, that we deserve this. Like, like you and I, we deserve eternal separation from God in hell. That's what we deserve. And so as you study this, it, it brings you to a place of humility, knowing that you've been set free through no work of my own. You've been set free from that. And so he bears our separation so that we don't have to be separated from him. So it brings about humility in our lives, but it also brings about an urgency, I think. That when you look at this concept of hell, it brings about an urgency for the gospel as you think and pray for and witness to friends, relatives, co-workers, people that you know. There's an urgency as you think about what's at stake. And so if you're someone who is an unbeliever, I want to talk to you now. Right now you think God is good and that he wouldn't send you to hell. And you're, you're right about his goodness. You're right about his mercy. But his goodness demands justice. And I can't fully comprehend it. You can't fully comprehend Prophet Isaiah told us that you and I are not going to understand everything there is to know about God. And if you come to the table with that idea in mind, then I think you can take the next step and say, you know what, I don't fully understand it, but I'm willing to embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior and to do it in faith, knowing that he has your best interests in mind, knowing that he wants what is best for you, knowing he wants a relationship with you, Either Jesus pays for our sins or we pay for our sins. Let him pay. If you're not a believer, let him pay. Let him pay for your sins. Reminded of a passage, Romans chapter 1, 24 and 25, where it says, this is Paul writing, he says, 
Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. Why do I share that passage with you? Here's why. Because in Romans 1, we see this idea that in the here and now, God gives some people over to their sin in an effort to bring them to repentance. So they would see that it's a dead end, and they would come back to him. And so that happens in this life, where God does that. He hands people over to their sin. And so right now, if you're not a believer, I'm assuming you're saying, I want freedom from God. I don't want God part of my life. I want freedom from God. And so if you want freedom, then God says in this life, that's what you will have. You will have freedom from God. You can be selfish. You can exploit other people. You can, you can steal. You can lie. You can hate. You can live your life. And so you have freedom from God. But in the end, if someone continues down that pathway, in the end, you will also get freedom from God. And that is freedom from His goodness, freedom from His provision, freedom from His joy, freedom from His comfort, freedom from His protection. Hell is God giving us exactly what we desire. Freedom from Himself. May it be that hell is the final handover. But here's the good news. Is that God gives us a way out. That in the gospel, Jesus coming to earth, taking on sin, the sin debt that you and I can't pay, bearing the weight of that, bearing the wrath of his own father, on himself. Taking the sin debt that you and I could not pay. And then conquering death through the resurrection. That if you put your faith and trust and you want to submit and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And follow after him. That God provides a way out for you. And if you choose not to take that then he will give you what you want, which is freedom from himself. And that looks like hell. And so I'm going to pray in a minute. And if you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you, if you're not a believer and you feel God convicting you and weighing down upon you in this moment, and you want to follow him, I'm going to encourage you, as I'm praying, I want you to pray and tell him that. And tell him you want to be in relationship with him. Tell him that you believe in the cross, in the resurrection. I'm going to encourage you to make today the day of salvation for you. Make today the day that you surrender your life to him and follow after him. Francis Shan says these words. <clears throat> we are bound by the words of the Creator the one who will do what is right. The one who invented justice and knows perfectly what the unbeliever deserves. God has never asked us to figure out his justice or to see if his way of doing things is morally right. 
He has only asked us to embrace his word and bow the knee, to tremble at his word, as Isaiah says. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Father, we are grateful, we're thankful that even by your mercy, you've allowed us to come into relationship with you. We thank you that in the cross, you provide, give us a provision. You pay our debt so we don't have to. You resurrect. We know that we are identified with you in the resurrection as well. God, we thank you for how this hard doctrine, how it humbles us, how it gives us urgency. But I also pray for anyone here today that doesn't know you and has not surrendered their life to you, Father. I pray that even now you'd weigh on their conscience, you would weigh on them, and they would see you as true freedom. They would see you as the provision. They would see you as the way out. God, we pray that they would come to know you today. We pray that they would step into the body of Christ, knowing they have brothers and sisters here that can walk alongside them in their spiritual journey. We pray, God, that they would embrace your provision of grace and receive it and accept it, the free gift of salvation in your Son. We pray this in your name. Amen.